on the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, it is the 1st of September. We are already moving into autumn. I know not officially autumn, uh, but we have got a lot of problems stacking up this morning uh, and we're going to kick off. I'm going to tell you this, not with the rail strike, which is a massive problem where nobody's been able to get anywhere today because there are literally no trains going anywhere at all. Uh, the whole country has come to a complete standstill. So it's bad news if you have to try and get from point A to point B. But secondly, uh, we've got a massive potential disaster on our hands in our school system. Not because they're teaching kids the wrong kind of sex education, not because they're telling kids that they should transition uh, into a different gender, not because they're being told that, you know, climate change is the biggest threat that faces them, because they're going to tell them, don't look up, not because it's a movie, but because the concrete ceiling above you is about to fall on you. Because apparently there are 156 schools and nurseries that have been closed down just today because they're worried that the kids are in danger because if they walk into those schools, guess what's going to happen? The concrete, aerated concrete, which has only got a 30-year lifespan and has been there for more than 30 years, is so dangerous that they can't risk having human beings walking around inside the rooms where the concrete exists. It's hard to believe Richard Tice is here with me this morning. Richard, if this is not uh, an allegory of what is going wrong in this country, I don't know what is. They basically built these buildings between the 50s and the 90s. They knew that the concrete that they were using only had a 30-year lifespan, and yet they built them anyway. And they've known about this for ages, and suddenly now, on the eve of the opening of the new school year, they're having to shut schools. It is truly shocking, actually, as more details come out about this. It's one thing saying something's got a 30 or 40 year lifespan. But guess what? As you get towards the end of that period, Mm. maybe you need to think, well, it might need replacing. It might need checking. One of these buildings actually literally did collapse. Not this year, Mm. not last year, five years ago, back in 2018. So this, this problem basically has been known about since then. And in classic public sector government style Mm. under this conservative government people have just sort of mumbled and bumbled along nothing's happened and all of a sudden everyone's realized and woken up yes there's a major crisis this is this is pure utter total sheer incompetence five years they've had warnings about this and it could have been done easily sorted with a preventative program but instead we've now got complete panic and chaos. Yeah, exactly right. We're going to come back to that. That's the main story of the day this morning. We've still got other stories to talk about. Junior doctors and consultants have now decided to go out and strike together over a four-day period in September. Uh, we've got the police failing to solve 90% of all crime. We're going to catch up with the latest on the ULEZ situation. We understand uh, that here in the expanded ULEZ zone in London, something like over 600 cameras have now been taken down uh, by the Blade Runners, uh, and they're very much still a going concern. They're going to take down anything that the government of London puts up, so anything Sadiq Khan can do, uh, they can undo, which is quite an extraordinary situation. GPs are getting paid £12,000 more a year and seeing fewer people. Brilliant. And also, there's a begging gang that's raking in £500 a day in Bath. We all knew this was going on. Professional beggars, don't give them any money. Uh, I can tell you it's all going to end in tears. Meanwhile, loads of people still stranded abroad. Is there any good news? Um, not really. Richard Tice is here, um, and he's got some... good news, apart from the fact that I'm here, next week... It's going to be lovely weather. It's going to be an Indian there you summer. Go. Indian they, summer. Fantastic. We've got to try and look for the positives. Well, I mean, we'll look out for those great big red maps of the BBC. They'll be telling you to stay indoors and wear a hat, no doubt. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on.
So, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the 1st of September. Here we are at Talk TV, the only place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Richard Tice is here. Um, Richard, this is an extraordinary story. You've got the National Education Union, the NEU, saying uh, the situation is absolutely disgraceful. Uh, there's going to be massive disruption to children's education because aside from the danger that they're having to close these schools because it's dangerous, they're actually saying what we're going to do is have remote learning yes now, we were where did we hear that before well and what and, damage did it do and we huge damage to the education of children and of course massive disruption for parents who mm. are trying to get to work trying to deal with the cost of living crisis so the impact will be just humongous yeah uh, going uh, as i say through parents families businesses in particular impact on small businesses mm. all of a sudden parents have got to try and educate people at home online i mean this really is let, let's hope the number of schools mm. can, can be minimised. Let's try and look for some positives. But what I would fear is that there will now be sort of a general panic uh, everywhere. And uh, there's got to be some very rapid uh, assessment of, of, of where there genuinely is risk and yes. where there isn't. I mean, the government said any schools confirmed to have reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete known as RAAC, a weak form implicated in a school roof collapse in 2018, could not open without mitigations and may have to teach online or in alternative buildings. I mean... It seems incredible to me that they've known about this for this length of time. The Times has also found, it's on the front page of the Times today, first warnings about this substance have been cracking in roofs came as early as 1995. So we're talking like 28 years ago. Uh, uh, and what that, the hell are they thinking? Well, that is the point, isn't it? What were they thinking? Where was the preventative? Where was the clear sort of... You're supposed to have a planned preventative programme for maintenance. That's yeah. what most buildings have, whether it's public sector well, or private sector. I know a thing about a few of these. I mean, do and you know much about this particular form enough, This of actually is a new one on me. Yeah. And I, I, it's it's quite often the case that in construction you come up with new techniques and you say this is cheaper mm. and it'll last for X period of time. Right. Look, that's all fine as long as you remember when you get to the end of the lifespan, yes. you've then actually got to have a plan for what to right. do with it thereafter. And there couldn't have been any plan really for this because if you build a building with something which starts failing after a particular period of time, the building becomes useless, doesn't it? Uh, completely useless. So you've, you've, you've then got to have a plan to replace it, yeah. to take down the ceiling or the wall or whatever. Right. So, yes, there will be, uh, I think, a, a lot of deep anxiety everywhere. And you mm. can understand parents saying, what's the implication for my school, this school? Uh, and I'm afraid that you're going to have uh, certain elements of the teaching unions will, be, will of course, be, uh, they will be ramping this up uh, to an ever greater scale. Yeah. But, you know, for children, the most, the key thing is, for children that damage their education, if they've got to go back online, Let's hope that actually some construction firms, project managers can rapidly get yeah. in and assess those that are genuinely in danger mm. that need to be propped up, where yeah. you need to move out, bring in some port cameras. And in fairness, there are actually, trying to be positive about this, you can rapidly bring in porter cabin classrooms and things in order to get people back, yeah. children and teachers back Well, my back son's school, schools. funnily enough, was being reconstructed over the last two or three years, in fact. In fact, for most of the time that he was in the high school, they were in a porter cabin yes. of one kind or another. And, and, and they, so schools do do that. They can do that. But according to the Times, uh, of those who have received warnings, as many as 30 are, are being told that they must close entirely and move pupils to portable classrooms, other schools, empty buildings, or even revert to online learning. Uh, so there's something like 600-odd uh, schools in, 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 in implicated in this but they'll only have to close bits of them, apparently. Yeah, and, and as I say, let's hope that they can get some, some rapid progress in bringing in portable classrooms, in, uh, in essentially sort of closing off mm. those areas that might be at risk so that you can keep children 
in different parts, but obviously some some schools have got more space to mm. do that than others. Yeah. If it's a, a city centre school, it just may not have the space. No. So every school will be slightly different uh, and there will be a, a huge programme of work, but it's a, but it's a, a chaotic story. start to and the, so, I mean, to the new school And so, I mean, if you're a and you've got kids going back to school, uh, I'd love to hear from you because you'll know, uh, obviously, if your school that your children are going to is in any way in danger. And if so, what have they told you? Uh, and where have they said you're supposed to send the children? But, but but schools ministers like Nick Gibb, I mean, mm. he's been a schools minister of varying forms yeah. for many, many years right. under this conservative regime. So yeah, he's got some serious questions to ask about what the DfE knew mm. when yeah. and who was doing what about it. Yeah. And he needs to make it. He needs to explain himself and, and the department's failings. Mm. Yeah, he absolutely does. And meanwhile, of course, um, we've got a new uh, couple of ministers in government. By the way, if you are uh, going to get in touch with us, here's the number 03444991000. Love to know what's going on uh, with your new school year, if anything, in terms of this concrete problem uh, that we've got. Uh, two ministers on the front pages. Grant Shapps, front page of the Guardian, the new Secretary of State for Defence, and then, even more unbelievably, the new Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero, um, Claire Coutinho. And there she is on the front page of the Times, looking very smug. Um, nobody knows who she is. No one's ever nobody heard of her, frankly. She's only her. been an MP for four years. It turns right. out she's a very close friend of the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Mm. She went used to, to be Oxford. his advisor or something, right? Yeah, well, she went to Oxford. She worked for a bunch of think tanks. And uh, she's been a great advocate of lots of uh, net zero issues, green issues. She even uh, worked making, she wanted to rename September yeah. Green Timber. Has anybody heard of Green Timber? I've never heard of it. Well, I hadn't either, no. but apparently uh, it's a thing. It doesn't really thing. work for me, though. It doesn't work for me. No. But so she's uh, she's completely down the whole uh, sort of green rabbit yes. hole, it seems to me. I mean, like, you've got Rocktober works, right? That's when you've got rock music in October. <laughs> Movember's good. You know, that's mustachioed men raising money for charity in November. Was it Green, green Timber? No, no, it's, it's, no it's, good. it's not Hopeless. doing it for me. If that's and the best she can come up with, I think we might as well get rid of her now. Well, <laughs> you know, thanks very much, I, I'm Claire. Not, I'm not that enthused uh, or, or encouraged, frankly. There's a, there's a desperate attempt to say that she might try and row back on mm. some of the... Uh, the madness of the costs of net zero, yeah. but I'm I'm not buying that at all. I think actually it's completely the opposite. I think yeah. she's completely down the whole net zero. Well, I was listening hole. to an MP last night on First Edition who said that on Tuesday of next week there's a bill going through the House. I think which is about controlling the costs of certain net zero things. I think it's some of the uh, backbenchers from the Tory party who are trying to push for you know a slowing down of the net zero commitments and, and a kind of guarantee that people are not going to be out of pocket for whatever reason. So she's going to have to get right on top of that brief straight away and answer uh, some tough questions. Well, it'll, be, it'll be very interesting, but uh, we, we know what will happen. Yeah. She, will, she will spout the usual... Uh, Tory propaganda about, you know, yes, we're heading towards net zero. We're absolutely committed to it. Mm. And the truth is that it's hurting people. It's yeah. hurting people every day. And they can't get away from the KPMG report, mm. which says that net zero will cost every household in this country for at least the next decade an extra £1,000 post-tax. Yeah. This is serious cash. And they need to do something have. about it. I'm not interested in waffle, in talk, in spin. Oh, yes, we're concerned about it. I want action. I want decisions. Mm. I want some of this madness stopped right. and stopped now before it causes any more damage. And, of course, the whole ULES catastrophe that's yeah. going on at the moment is just one function of this. Yes. And it's, it's in a sense, it, it's, 
utterly extraordinary, yeah. but you are seeing now the consequences of that. But it sort of focuses the mind on, on a policy which nobody wants and which basically is going to cost everybody a lot more money. And that pretty much sums up the whole net zero nonsense. And Khan, Sadiq Khan, he keeps trying to make out that it's not actually about net zero, it's about clean air. Well, it's not actually about either. Uh, it's about him raising a load of money from people who are already tapped out. Absolutely right, because the truth is that when the Imperial College scientists, they said that actually looking at the data, that the ULES extension would make no difference mm, yeah. to air pollution. Yeah, they didn't like his, that. So then he didn't like that. His yeah. deputy tried to sort of fudge and <laughs> so, fiddle the words. Oh, and by the way, here's another contract for another 800 grand over the next couple of years. Yeah. If you can sort of toe yeah. the line, please. It's very like nicely. the old Henny Youngman joke, isn't it? He said, I went to the doctor, he gave me six months to live. Uh, six months later, I said, I can't pay the bill. He gave me another six months. <laughs> you know, that's what it's like. You know, these people are charlatans. Uh, they are absolutely putting the wool over everybody's eyes. They're doing it for money. Um, they paid 800,000 quid to to the Imperial College group who came up with this rubbish, right? And when they came up with the wrong opinion, they all oh, don't worry, you can have another opinion. And that's how it went. We're going to talk more about Grant Chaps, more about the rail strike, more about the doctor's strike. And this concrete collapse is unbelievable. I mean, surely they should have just grown some more. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Richard Tice is here. We'll take your calls coming up as well on a whole range of subjects. 0344 499 1000. Grant Shapps, though, let's go back to him, Richard, because all I heard yesterday, uh, Greg Clark came out, another sort of anonymous minister, I don't even know what he's a minister of, uh, or he might not even be one anymore, talking about what a great experienced minister Grant Shapps is. You know, he's been a minister since, you know, 2010 or something like this. Um, that's I, can't that's think, because, I can't think of one thing that he's done uh, that you would say, what is Grant Shapps famous he, for? Exactly. Nothing. He's had more jobs than most of us had yeah. hot dinners in the last, he was home in the last literally he, year. He was Home Secretary for six days in that sort of turbulent yeah, period. He's been, he's been a Cabinet uh, Minister of five different departments in one year. He's Look, you know when he comes on, basically, uh, that you're going to hear a load of spin. He sounds very good and very positive and all that. Mm. Fine. But where's the action? Where's the do? Yeah. Let's just remind people, this is the bloke that said back in February 2021, I think it's January 21, that uh, the moment that everybody, the elderly had been vaccinated, he would be standing on the ramparts with Julia mm. in order to lift lockdowns. Yes. And when she challenged him on it, right. back end of February, mm. all we got was waffle and... Uh, mm. You know, you can't well, trust, you can't trust a word before. that man says. The only things I remember before is when he was transport secretary, uh, he went to Spain on holiday with his family. Uh, and while he was in Spain, they announced it was a lockdown and nobody could fly anywhere. And he was the transport <laughs> secretary, didn't know it was coming. And you go, right, that's not great. And then the other one was when I, I interviewed him once only, and I always tell the same story, when he said to me... Um, well, don't you want Britain to be the world leader in onshore wind? And I went, not really. And he'd never seen anybody ever say that. He was so shocked. He, I think he, he sort of had to go and have a lie down. <laughs> I said, look, no, we're only interested in cheap energy. We're interested in uh, a decently uh, run and home-produced energy. And apart from that, nobody cares. But here's the point. Defence is a, it's a huge brief. And Ben Wallace, I think, has probably been the best defence secretary that any of us can remember. Mm -hmm. He's done it for four years. That's the longest Conservative Defence Secretary since Winston Churchill. That's a remarkable thing. Yeah. Uh, but you have to know what you're doing. Mm. And to learn this brief, if, you, if you've never been in the armed forces, you've got no experience yeah. in security whatsoever, which Grant mm. Shapps hasn't got any of that, right. would take many, many months. And the reality is there were some very good experienced candidates, mm. the likes of James Heapy, but instead Sunak's gone for, guess what? 
another mate. Well, even Tom another Tugendhat. Another loyalty, a yes man. Tom Tugendhat's been in, in the armed forces. He could have done it. Um, I know that people might have said that, uh, you know, the, the veterans minister might not be quite ready for it. But as you say, there were, there were plenty of people. But what this tells you about Rishi Sunak, though, is he wants to appoint people to very important jobs, ministries of state, which used to be a very respected position. Well, who's going to respect Grant Shapps wandering in He's just um, appointing... to a NATO meeting, for example? Exactly. I mean, that, that's just laughable. Mm. Absolutely laughable. The idea of Grant Shapps uh, talking in a strong way mm. about the defence of our nation, the defence, uh, the, the pro promotion of NATO mm. uh, against Russia. It's just laughable. When you compare that against Ben's, what Ben Wallace and some of the other uh, potential yeah. candidates, he's just appointed his mm. mates to key positions mm. Uh, in order to basically protect and say yes, sir, no, sir. And once sir, again, it proves it. it's all about what he thinks um, it looks like as opposed to what he actually wants to do. He clearly wants to do nothing. I mean, the migrant situation gets goes from bad to worse. We now see... Um, student blocks being commandeered in Huddersfield. They've taken over this block of flats which students have actually got leases for and the, and, and the, the, the landlord's obviously got better offer from the Home Office and he's gone with them. I mean, if they're going to start just... Is this now Rishi Sunak's version of we won't be putting them in hotels anymore, we'll just commandeer blocks of flats for them? It's, it's truly uh, so shocking that it should be deemed appropriate by the government, by the Home Office, by Number 10, that actually the migrants are more important... Mm than British citizens who are students, whose families have paid their taxes, and they just treat people with absolute disdain. Essentially, they're sort of making students homeless yeah. uh, when they're going to university a month, in favour of, of these illegals. Yeah, less than a month before, and I'm in the middle of trying to find student accommodation for my own son, and, you know, you can't find it at this time of the year. So if you're one of those parents whose kids are being kicked out in Huddersfield, they're going to really struggle to get any other place to stay, yeah. apart from a, a most vast expense. And meanwhile, everybody else is getting rich off it. It's unbelievable. It, Absolutely it, outrageous. It, it's, it's, it is actually truly outrageous. But there's just a complete, uh, complete lack of foresight, complete lack of delivery on anything. Mm. And... It's just, it, it's catastrophic. Wherever you go, whichever department, nothing seems to work. Mm. And we've now got a defence department that's led by someone who knows nothing about defence. You've got a, uh, a, a net zero department, energy department, where you need, the crucial thing we yeah. need is energy reliability. We need Coutinho, cheap energy. Claire Coutinho, I understand, is anti-fracking, right? So uh, that's right, she's, she's no anti-fracking. Supposedly Rishi Sunak was pro-fracking, now he's anti-fracking. Look, the point is, we need to use our own it's energy. It's fracking ridiculous, is all I know. That's, it's fracking you know. ridiculous. That's absolutely right. You know, what about this other story that there's some kind of cave-in going on in India? Rishi Sunak facing Tory revolt over fears that he could hand India thousands of student visas um, in return for some kind of bumper trade deal. So, in addition to giving them foreign aid, in addition to already granting India many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of visas for travel and student uh, uh, visas, we've got more people coming on the boats from India now. As well what's going on well that's right i mean if, why do you need to come on a boat from india if actually you can get a visa yeah. from india that's i mean that's well, the i first guess these point. are the people that can't get visas well they've been turned down for a visa well but, but that actually proves the whole thing that this safe and legal route idea is yeah. a complete of nonsense it is. because if you're turned down from a visa from a safe and legal route yeah. guess what you get the boat so you've got to stop the boats you've mm. got to pick them up and safely take back look we all want more trade we want more growth yeah but the price of that should not be a huge increase in visas for low or modestly skilled people because yeah. we need to get our own people back into work. A right. shocking statistic just out in the last few days mm. is that the number I've been banging on about, the number of people, British people on out-of-work benefits, has risen from 5.2 million to 5.4 million. 
and heading north fast. Again, the government knows about this, doing absolutely zero about it. Well, they're sort of enabling people to not work, aren't they? I mean, we saw another story this week from the guy who's the head of Amazon saying Let's, working from home is not happening, it's not working. We've seen a story today saying that one of the problems with air traffic control, as it all went belly up uh, this uh, the middle of this week, uh, is that a lot of them are working from home. Great, you know, so the guy controlling the sort of joystick of the, you know, what do they used to call them? BA heavy, the jumbo coming in from Los Angeles. You know, he's sitting in his bedroom in his I, underpants I, it, going, it, yeah, looks all right to me. Yeah, I read right. that story and thought, is it April Fool's Day? Yeah. I mean, if anybody needs to be amongst the team, knowing what's going on, sharing concerns, hearing anything, mm. you need, your air traffic controllers need to be surely in the same I mean, place. You just can't be doing yeah. that. From it's your bedroom, for heaven's sake. It's just not you might be playing Game Boy from your bedroom, yeah. but please not looking after so the, right for the GPs. air above. Sorry right for GPs, because they can do it. Uh, they don't have to bother going to the GP surgery. They're earning £12,000 more a year, uh, but they're seeing fewer patients. So that's because they don't have to turn up. Patients are still not being allowed into surgeries. People tell me that even now, uh, so long after COVID has gone away, you walk into a GP surgery and it's deserted. There's nobody there. Yeah, and, and we all know the consequences of that. You've got many, many more people living in the United Kingdom, and yet we've got GPs less face-to-face -face appointments. Much, much harder uh, to see a GP mm. story earlier. Someone was, I mean, just the, the time it's taking. And this government thinks, oh, great, we've got a target. Mm. Two weeks to see a GP. Forget it. In Australia, they laugh at you yeah. if you say it takes longer than a day, for yeah. heaven's sake. So, uh, it's, I mean, the whole thing is, it's a catastrophe. It's so worrying. And so you've got more and more people. And more and more people are just at the end of their tether now. Absolutely. I know so tether. many people who can't afford to go private with healthcare, but who are just doing it because they know that if they don't, they'll become one of those uh, statistics on the NHS waiting list who actually die waiting. Exactly. Well, in, in truth, what's actually happening quietly, and no one wants to talk about it, is healthcare is being privatised mm. because people are so desperate, because the NHS, that all the lefties want to pour yet more money into, uh, is actually failing. Mm. And it's failing at every level. Uh, there are some, of course, there's some, some examples of brilliance, but it doesn't need more money. It needs reform, fundamental reform. You've got to stop wasting cash at every level. Focus on the front line, patient care. Absolutely right. Um, now, your show on Sunday? Big show on Sunday, show. yes. I mean, there's a lot to be getting your teeth into. There will be plenty to get my teeth into. There will be a, a sizzling, soaring Sunday sermon. Tremendous. There's quite a lot of work going into that. At the Excellent. Moment. So, Excellent. Uh, there's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of show. preparation. Much more than my show. I make no preparation <laughs> for my show because I have to do another show before it starts. That's my preparation. Um, but listen, it'll be a great weekend. Fantastic show coming up. Um, who knows what next week will hold? Uh, it's almost impossible to know. We've got the train strike all weekend. The doctor's going on strike as well in September. You know, I don't know if we can... Can we get to Christmas? Good news, though. It'll be warm next week. It'll be warm. So maybe that's why they've gone on strike, so they can you know, go on the sun lounger and just Absolutely. enjoy the weather. Absolutely right. Incredible. Uh, coming up, we're going to speak to Norman Baker, who's a former transport minister. Commuters this morning have been slamming. I mean, there's been loads of people here that couldn't get into work. Appalling disruption caused by their journeys uh, because of the rail strikes. More than a dozen company cancelled all services. And the circle line shut down as well because they've got driver shortages. I mean, isn't it time to just take the drivers out of the picture and make the trains automatic? That you, would don't, make... you don't seem to have strikes on the DLR, the Dockland and Light no. Railway. Guess what? Because it's a it driverless a train. Yeah, exactly. And there's driverless trains all over the world. Anyway, Richard, we've got to run because we're already late. But thank you so much. We'll see you on Sunday, 10 o'clock. Don't miss it. Uh, we'll be back with more on the state of the nation. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got so much to tell you about this morning because in addition uh, to the crippling rail strike, which is as left train drivers today uh, who have just literally walked off the job uh, in such a disgraceful way that they have left no skeletal service really perhaps to almost anywhere. Uh, there are a few trains going from London to Leeds. There are a few trains going from London Central to Watford Junction. But there's basically no trains on all of the main routes in and out of uh, every major city. Uh, and it's absolutely ridiculous. And then tomorrow, uh, to make matters worse, Asleff are joined by the RMT um, so that, bizarrely, there will actually be more trains, but it will be an even more kind of a crippled service in, in, in some respects. The circle line is down as well in London because all uh, day they haven't been able to find anybody to actually drive the trains. So... You know what it's like. What will happen is that basically it will not just be today and tomorrow that there's a problem. It will run into Sunday. The trains will all be in the wrong places. It will run into Monday. Um, it's just absolutely appalling. Um, and it's time it was stopped. And I think we can all agree, uh, I'm going to speak to Norman Baker, former Transport Minister in a moment, that the unions are, are just not interested. You know, this is no longer about anything other than a political strike aimed at bringing down the government and aimed at keeping it going, I think, until the election, when they expect to be given everything they want by Sir Keir Starmer. Norman, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Um, I don't know if you share my frustration at this, but, you know, people say to me now, look, this has been going on for so long that we've just changed our plans. We just don't travel by train. I mean, I'm certainly one of those. I had to go up to Edinburgh during the festival and the nicest way to go to Edinburgh is on the train. But I ended up flying because I thought, I don't know if the train is going to run, if they're going to call some kind of wildcat strike. You know, you just can't um, allow for that anymore. And so, but today, um, lots of people, certainly in, in many offices around the country, won't have been able to get to work. Lots of people who were trying to go away for the weekend. Lots of people coming back from abroad where they've been stranded thanks to the air traffic controllers. You know, none of them can do anything. And why do these unions, why are they so recalcitrant? And, I, I, you know, you may say to me, well, the government should negotiate better. I don't think they need to. <laughs> There's a whole lot packed in there. Sorry. Mike. The first <laughs> thing is that le leisure travel is actually up uh, compared to pre-COVID. And because strikes are announced in advance, I suppose people are able to make their arrangements on days when strikes aren't taking place if they're travelling for leisure. Um, and uh, as far as commuting is concerned, commuting is, of course, well down compared to pre-COVID because people got used to home working to a degree, which means that on strike days, they simply work from home. So actually, from the union's point of view, the strikes are less effective uh, than they would have been, say, 10, 15 years yeah. ago, where people were more set in their ways. Mm. As to why nothing's happening, I mean, I don't with Aslep, I think with Aslep, they are simply in a position where they've got a huge amount of power to bring the railway to a standstill, and they're refusing to give way on any changes to terms and conditions. That's the sticking point with them. They've been offered 8% over two years. It's dependent on terms and conditions being changed. They don't want to change those terms and conditions, and they haven't been negotiating, I think, since April, um, because that's a sticking point between the two mm. sides. As far as the RMT is concerned, uh, Mick Lynch, I think, has been negotiating in uh, in good faith. And he's come up with some deal almost with the government or with the train company, the governor behind the train companies, of course. But his executive are, I think, more political and don't want to engage with the deal that Mick Lynch himself has negotiated. Yeah. He had to rock pulled up underneath them. And that's the problem, that's isn't it? Because, those two. Yeah, but that's but the, the other problem. Thing, just my, my last point on, on your point is that if they're waiting for the Labour government to bail them out, they'll be sorry because... 
I think Rachel Reeve and her team are not going to give any, any more ground than the Tories do. No, but I, but you know, you know this. Um, you're, you're a veteran of these things, Norman, without wishing to, to, to aid you in any way. Um, you know, they expect the Labour Party to be more, uh, shall we say, sympathetic towards union demands. And they always hope that when the Labour government gets in, it will actually be a better deal for them. And so whether they're mistaken about that, they'll have to wait and see. But I think the problem for a lot of people now um, is that, you know, they just have no faith in the train unions. And I think in the end, these unions will go the same way that we've seen the car unions going, the mining unions, you know, the shipbuilding unions, and they'll end up losing because trains will just be automated. And that's surely the only way this will end up. Well, there is an issue as to as to, uh, as to how many people you should have on the train. I mean, on the DLR, the point that uh, Richard Tice is making, my understanding is he actually have a member of staff on there for safety reasons, so it was not unstaffed. Yeah, but, there's, but there's nobody actually the driving. But there's nobody driving it though. No, there's nobody driving it, but there is a member of staff on board. But I mean, look, I mean, there is a whole range of changes to terms and conditions which are appropriate for 2023, which need to be, in my view, introduced. And the deal has always been in my head that you change the terms and conditions that genuinely releases money for the railway, and then you give some of that money or most of it back to the unions in terms of better pay. That's a deal which should be on offer. Uh, but there's reluctance on both sides, I think, to get to that particular point. I don't see this ending any time sooner. No. No, I think that's absolutely right. But as I say, I, don't, I think the people don't want to see the government caving in either because the people see certainly train drivers as pretty well paid. Uh, they've got incredible terms and conditions, uh, as many people do uh, in, in, in transport unions uh, overall. Because in Transport for London, for example, the RMT guys have got some of the best deals you've ever seen in your life. You know, yeah. their working day starts as soon as they walk out their front door. And if they've got a seven-hour shift to do, they only actually end up doing about four or five because the travelling time on either side of it is included in the shift so that kind of thing is a term and condition that ordinary people can't understand they're kind of going well why do they get that and nobody else does and i can understand them wanting to hold on i can understand them wanting to hold on to it but at the end of the day we're also paying through the nose i mean we gave these train uh, companies 700 million quid in one year during covid just to keep the people working well i mean effectively now all the trains have been nationalized i don't understand labor's policy actually about nationalization of the trains everything is basically nationalized now anyway uh, all the train companies are running according to contracts set by the department of transport which takes a revenue risk uh, on on the money coming in as far as the, the, the workers are concerned i mean the some of the rmt guys aren't paid very well let's be frank about yes, it no, I the get drivers that. are paid the drivers are paid pretty well there are i think the average is sixty-five thousand yeah. pounds for a 40 week for the uh, for the train drivers and the irony, Mike, is this, is that um, they've done really, really well out of privatisation because yeah. back in the old days of BR, they negotiated with one company, if you like, BR, and that applied across the whole bit. Mm. What's happened since then is the train companies have not wanted a train driver to take a long time. They wanted a poacher from other people. So they've been able to ratchet up their wages in order to in, in order to get uh, the drivers which, uh, which are moving around from company to company. The yes. drivers are done really well since privatisation. No, of course. But, I mean, at the end of the day, why is it possible for them to have such great um, jobs? And I, I accept that some of the people in the RMT are not paid as well. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, these train companies can't seem to make any money the model doesn't seem to work. You know, we were always told they subsidise better uh, in other countries in Europe and therefore oh. the train services are much, much more reliable. But, I mean, again, like many things in this country, including the NHS, you know, pouring money into them never seems to work any better. No, well, look, I mean, the, the model has changed and people maybe don't be aware of this. The model, the franchising model, which operated until 2018, has fallen over. It fell yeah. over. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was falling over anyway, but it fell over absolutely with COVID. We've now got a situation where the government effectively runs every single train in this country. And the companies have simply paid a management fee to do what the government wants them to do. So the railways have been effectively nationalised now. Now, what the problem is, is there is no incentive for the train companies who act as agents of the government to collect money. They don't. They get the same money whether or not there are passengers on the train or not. Right. And we have to, in my view, instill a situation whereby uh, the train companies are incentivised to collect money and to boost passenger numbers. Public service contracts. That was promised in the government's Williams plan. We're still waiting for it. Yeah, I mean, that is the problem. And, you know, Mick Lynch has previously said that he's going to keep these strikes going um, until such time as, you know, the government caves in. But clearly the government isn't going to cave in. I mean, do you, no. do you suspect the government has got some ulterior motive here, that they've got some plan of action? I'd like to think they do, but tragically, I don't think they have. No, I think I think um, I think Mick Lynch does want to do a deal. He's an old-fashioned union guy, and wants a deal for his members. And I think he's he's prisoner of his own executive, who have a different agenda and maybe more political agenda than I think than he does. I think the government, people like Hugh Merriman, and I think he's a very good rail minister, by the way, Hugh Merriman, and I like Mark Harper, the Secretary of State for Transport. I think they genuinely want to improve the railways, and they genuinely want to introduce uh, methods which will push up passenger numbers and push up income for the railways, but. They've got their own problems because number 10 and number 11 don't always support them. No, that is the thing. So I guess from what you're saying, you don't seem particularly upbeat about what's likely to happen between now and Christmas. Are we just going to see more strikes, do you think? 
We're going to see more strikes. We're going to see more strikes. I mean, I think it's a possibility they'll do a deal with the RMT, uh, but I think the, the chances of Aslev withdrawing uh, their strikes, uh, I think, are pretty remote. I think we're going to see Aslev strikes through the election. But as I say, I think um, if the unions think they're going to get a better deal from Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, they'll be sadly disappointed, I think. Yes, I think that's right. Norman, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Norman Baker, former Transport Minister himself there, talking about how there isn't much hope out there uh, for any kind of resolution to this ridiculous situation uh, where the RMT and Aslef unions can literally bring the railways to a complete standstill. And people are just not interested now in what they stand for. I think I don't think they have much sympathy at all. If they have any sympathy, it's been people who are in other trade unions who just think that this is a great way of holding the government to account and pushing the government to an election and over the edge. All it's doing is damaging the railways. And I believe it will end up uh, with the railway companies just saying, well, you know what, to hell with it. We're not going to bother employing people anymore. We're just going to have automatic trains. Uh, you can put a member of staff on it if you like, but they will not be stopped by strike action. They will go out of business just like the car business did, just like the shipbuilding industry did, just like the mines were all shut down, just like the steel business in this country. All the big industrial um, giant industries that we had have been killed off by the trade unions. And they're doing it now to the railways. So congratulations to the two mix, Whelan uh, and Lynch, because you have completely kiboshed your own careers. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. So much stuff to do today. It's really absolutely imperative that you stay tuned from now until one o'clock because we've got a lot coming up. What we're going to discover over the course of the next two hours is precisely what is going on in our schools, in our hospitals, on the railways, in all sorts of places, in the NHS as well, of course. We're going to talk to Christian Nemitz from the IEA, the Economic Forum. Sorry, not the Economic, well, the Economic Forum, I don't need to tell him that. The Institute of Economic affairs. Of course, uh, he's head of political economy there. We're going to talk about the problems inside the NHS because, of course, it's not just the fact that the junior doctors are going to go on strike alongside the consultants for the first time ever, which means that around the week of the 20th of September, there's going to be basically a four-day strike going on, which is going to be horrendous for patients. It's going to lengthen uh, the time that people are having to wait for operations and various procedures. We learned this week that more than half of people who died in 2022 were actually on an NHS waiting list. And if that doesn't tell you what's wrong with it, I don't know what does. But we're also talking about the train problem. We've got a text here from Neil in Hornsey. He says, Mike, you can only have also trains on closed loop systems like the DLR because they don't share other operators tracks there are hardly any such systems in the UK so it will never happen the answer to the railways woes is not automation it's the restrictive practices of the unions well yes it is the restrictive practices of the unions as well but if it means that you have to re uh, revolutionize the entire railway system in this country and also have driverless trains I think that's the way forward because we can't go like this for the rest of the time it is absolutely ludicrous it's antediluvian it's ridiculously uh, antiquated and it should not be allowed the government are quite right to stand up to the unions and not pay them. And that goes for not just the railway unions, it also goes for the doctors' unions. Let's talk to Christian Nemitz, Head of Political Economy uh, at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Christian, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, incredible problems inside the NHS. Um, it's hardly, a, we're hardly able to cover them really in the amount of time we've got to talk about it. Um, but you've written a piece about uh, how growing the workforce isn't quite the answer. 
I've also been uh, saying of late, that, and I've learned this from, from relatively recently, uh, people inside the NHS, a lot of people in the NHS don't work a full week. A lot of them work part-time. A lot of GPs work three days a week only. A lot of nurses uh, are on sort of part-time staff, part-time agency work. You know, they seem to have an awful lot of weird ways of working, which if they could fix, they would probably be able to do a lot more. Yes, uh, so that article that you mentioned, that was about uh, a report by the Institute uh, for Fiscal Studies where they say that by the middle of the next decade, uh, half of the public sector workforce are going to be employed by the NHS. So this mm. uh, takes us to a situation where uh, the old kingdom of Prussia was once described as a military with a country attached. And you could say by the middle of the next decade, uh, Britain is going to become a health service with a country attached. Yes. Um, it's not in principle a bad thing that you have more people working in uh, in healthcare related professions. It's just that if you have a monolithic system like the one we have, this automatically means that the state is going to grow in size and this takes us uh, in, in a very socialist direction. Well, it does, because I think 40 percent uh, now of what is largely spent by this government on various public sector um, scenarios is going to the NHS. And when I hear I still hear doctors say, well, the thing is, you know, it needs more investment. It doesn't. It's got too much investment and there's nobody inside the system who understands how to spend budgets or even to make budgets because they keep spending money on the wrong things, it seems to me. Well, yeah, we are now in the top 10 globally on healthcare spending as a proportion of the economy. Um, if that system is underfunded, then, well, then I guess almost every healthcare system in the world is underfunded. Yeah. Um, so that there was a time, I mean, Tony Blair had this promise um, a little over 20 years ago where he said, I'll raise uh, healthcare spending to the European average. Probably made sense at the time. In the 90s, it was broadly true that uh, the NHS was a fairly Spartan system. But... Um, we now have a very different situation and the rhetoric hasn't been updated. We still talk about the NHS as if we were still in the 90s. Yeah, exactly right. And I'm looking at a graph which is right up there on the screen now uh, for people watching on TV, uh, which says that the NHS spending puts the UK very firmly in the global top 10 of healthcare spending countries as a proportion of GDP. And we can't afford to give them any more money, can we? Well, I mean, we can. It will just mean higher taxes. Mm. So uh, this IFS report uh, that I mentioned, they say if, if you want to do this, you would either have to raise uh, the standard rate of VAT by 7 percentage points, so rather than 20%, uh, what we have now is going to be 27%, or raise all rates of income tax across the board by 6 percentage points. So rather than a basic rate of 20%, uh, we're going to have a 26% rate. And uh, that is, of course, going to be unpopular and cause all sorts of uh, economic damage. Um, it erodes work incentives. So you can do it. It's just, uh, well, you, you're imposing huge economic costs. And uh, the question is, is this really uh, better? Uh, is this really going to deliver much better healthcare in the end? Mm. Well, that's it, because we are at a crisis point. I think most people would agree that uh, the waiting lists are ridiculously out of control. We're going up every single year. We've got strikes which are going to make them longer. Um, there's 10 million people on a secondary list, as you probably know. So in all, in all, there's about nearly 18 million people waiting for some kind of NHS procedure in this country, whether it's first time or second time. And that is a huge percentage, nearly a third of the adult, probably over a third of the adult population waiting to be seen. And I've seen more and more people now going private 
even if they can't afford it. They're finding ways of doing it. Private hospitals are coming up with budget plans. More and more people are taking out private health insurance. You know, in the end, this is and this is going to end up causing the NHS to have to fragment, isn't it? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, the actual waiting list is probably even longer than that because there must be loads of people who have just given up trying. Mm. Um, so, so I'm one of those. I haven't seen uh, well much of the NHS in in years. I've basically just given up trying, and um, even the official waiting list is now the longest it's it's ever been. And at some point, you will have half of the country being mm. on a waiting list uh, of of some sort. So, yeah, I mean. Um, it it does lead to some people seeking private health care uh, on the side, and there's nothing wrong with private health care in principle. It's just that it's it's being done in a in an ad hoc chaotic way. Yes, uh, where you will then of course have um, what NHS defenders are always warning about, uh, which is a two tier system where uh, access to health care uh, does to some extent uh, depend on your ability to pay. I'd say if we had a more market oriented system uh, where most healthcare was provided privately in a, a competitive setting, mm. uh, but with subsidies for people who can't afford it, um, then we wouldn't have this problem. We don't see this problem in most of the, uh, the private or, or semi-private mm. continental systems. No, that's right, because they seem to work better. We've seen another uh, list coming up just to your, uh, to your left there on the screen uh, of the numbers of people being uh, forced to wait for such a long time to get some kind of procedure that they die while they're waiting. Uh, these are figures from the Times uh, data collection, uh, which was done this week. But, you know, uh, we're talking about 340,000 people. Over half of the people who died in, in England last year died uh, as, uh, as being members of the NHS waiting list. And I know that some people have said, well, that's not that surprising because you're dying because you're needing health treatment for something that's troubling you. But it's still far too high as a number for me. Yes, I wouldn't take those figures uh, at face value because being on a on a waiting list doesn't mean that it's for something life threatening. So this yeah. could be this does include people who are waiting for a knee operation or a hip replacement. If somebody dies while they're waiting for that, that's not what killed them. But we knew well before these figures came out that uh, we still have uh, elevated excess death rates and um, they just refuse to go back down to where they were before the pandemic. And uh, so we didn't really need those figures to know that there is something badly going wrong. No, I think that's right. But I mean, the other problem, I think, with the private sector is that large proportions of the work done in the private sector is actually done by NHS consultants. And I've always thought that was wrong. You know, I've always thought that you should either be in the private sector or in the, or in the public sector. You shouldn't be allowed to do both. Very ironic that consultants were told during the last strike if they wanted to do private work while they were on strike from the NHS, that would be OK. Well, yeah, that sets bad uh, incentives. <laughs> really? uh, uh, but even in, in normal times, uh, the problem is uh, you get um, doctors telling you, OK, you can get uh, this or that procedure. Uh, I would recommend you to do that privately. Yeah. And of course, uh, the private GP, that's the, the, the private uh, sector operator who's going to provide that is going to be the same person. So they're referring you to themselves, uh, but um, at a higher rate, of course. Yes. So, yeah, this, this is uh, normally you, you would have to have some um, agreement where um, where you just rule out conflicts of interest, where mm. you say you, you can offer some things privately, but there has to be this has to be something that's strictly 
uh, in addition to the uh, the regular healthcare that you get on the statutory system. Right. And how easy would it be, Christian, um, to re-divert, if you like, some of the monies that the NHS has, which, which we constantly rail on about, get spent on the wrong things, you know, like hundreds of thousands of pounds being paid out uh, in salaries to people who do non-clinical work, you know, £50,000 being given to people to be, you know, a social media um, editor for, for a particular hospital, you know, diversity coordinators, all of the net zero people that they've got, you know, could we do that or is the, the business too kind of entrenched in its own miasma? Well, say as long as uh, healthcare is a nationalist industry, it will always follow political priorities. And if having diversity coordinators or net zero managers, if that is the political priority of the day, then uh, any public sector institution is going to employ such people. It would be a different story if uh, hospitals were private businesses in competition with each other. There might still be some virtue signaling. Uh, we, we see this in, in uh, the private sector as well, of course, to the extent that they can afford it. But competition would set a natural limit to that if that really drives up costs and if that uh, then gets passed on to patients um, at some point they would have to say okay enough is enough and uh, that that would just put a lid on it and uh, but otherwise I'd say for things like um, so there is for example a concern that uh, that GPs are offering too many remote consultations um, that they're not offering face-to-face -face appointments anymore. That's the, the kind of thing that could be sorted out even within the, the system we have. That's simply a reflection of the way GPs are paid. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, they get a fixed a lump sum of money for everyone they have on their list. But then it doesn't really uh, matter what they do. Once somebody is on their list, they get the same amount of money no matter what. So they have an incentive to just put lots of people on the list and then not do very much. Mm. And uh, it would be possible uh, to say to them, look, you can offer remote consultations. Uh, nothing wrong with that. It's just that if you do that, you're not going to get the full rate. Yes. No, I mean, there are so many problems. I mean, we learn on, on GPs themselves today that they're all now uh, getting about £12,000 more a year than they were getting, but they're seeing fewer actual patients. Uh, yes, and GPs are already not particularly badly paid. I mean, by international standards, uh, there are parts of the health a workforce where you can say, um, right, they are uh, nurses in particular. They're not well paid uh, compared to their counterparts in uh, in comparable countries, and therefore a lot of them emigrate to Australia and other places. And okay, fair enough. If you have that problem, then you have a stronger case for saying uh, this is where this is clearly an area where salaries need to go up. Uh, for GPs, it's it's a different story. I mean, they, they are not badly paid uh, by international standards, and um, but this is really a matter for the for the negotiators for uh, the NHS contractors uh, to say, right, we have a constrained budget um, this year. Your your rates are just not going to go up by very much, and. I've always thought one of the few advantages of a system like the NHS would be that it makes it easier to control costs because you have a single employer, uh, you have, it's, the NHS is the only game in town and uh, it's not like in some other systems where if an individual healthcare provider says we're trying to control wages this year, uh, control costs 
uh, elsewhere, um, the doctors working for them can just say, okay, right, I'll go and work for someone else. Here, you don't have that option. Uh, the NHS is the only game in town. And uh, this should make it easier to control costs. It's just that it doesn't even seem to do that particularly well. And I guess the reason uh, is just that the medical profession is in a stronger position relative to the government. Government is unpopular, they have low approval ratings, and therefore they, they uh, the medical profession sense that weakness and they are taking advantage mm. of that. Yeah, of course. They also don't understand money because they don't have to. It's not theirs. And when you have money that doesn't belong to you, uh, you don't care how you spend it and you don't care what you do with it. You don't care what you get back from it. Uh, Christian, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Christian Niemitz, Head of Political Economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Lots more to do. We'll take some calls in a moment as well. We'll talk about the Loch Ness Monster. Once again, uh, I've been proved right. There is one. There's a picture of it in the Daily Mail. It's Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Plenty to do uh, between now and one o'clock. Ian Collins will be here, of course. Coming up tonight, Plank of the Week at seven, uh, followed by The World According to Mike Graham at eight o'clock. You don't want to miss that as well. Doing a bit of a deep dive uh, onto Sadiq Khan, uh, by the way, for that. Um, but coming up, of course, uh, we're going to be talking uh, about the sex education scandal. Claire Page uh, is going to join us to talk about that. But first up, uh, let's have a bit of this. The world of woke. And here we all are, back into the world of education. Now, it's not sufficient, is it, for the uh, old concrete to be failing uh, in most of the schools up and down the country where uh, many of them are having to shut down for fear that the ceiling might literally fall in uh, because they haven't done their proper research about what uh, concrete actually does and how it biodegrades over time. But this particular instance of World of Woke is not to do with that, it's to do with Cambridge University uh, which often is in the news when it comes to wokery because over at Cambridge University uh, there's a third year PhD history student at a place called St Catherine's College. He is of the name of Malik El Nazir um, and he's basically been studying the history of slavery uh, together with his family's own history and he discovered that his ancestors were enslaved in plantations in British Guyana uh, back in the 18th and 19th centuries um, and he's decided that a large amount of the wealth from slavery was brought to Liverpool um, by Samuel Sandbach and his business partners. Uh, Al-Nazir claims he was pressed to remove a reference in his work to an MP because what he's basically said is that the MP, whose name is Antoinette Sandbach, um, formerly uh, an MP for Cheshire, uh, is a descendant of one Samuel Sandbach, and he reckons that, you know, he should have mentioned her name. Now, the big row that's going on uh, is that she, quite rightly, is saying uh, that she was threatening legal action with Cambridge University, uh, saying, why the hell have you named me as a descendant of merchants who enslaved your ancestors? Doesn't seem very right, doesn't seem very fair, particularly uh, given that you haven't actually given any context for it. Um, he says... Um, that he wasn't really trying to cause any trouble, um, but he basically wants all sorts of reparations. Um, she has said that she's instructing solicitors and considering a formal complaint. Her concern is that his research had ignored British women's legal positions in the 19th century. Um, she also said um, that she does not think that he should be able to have the right to besmirch her name in such a way. Uh, he, by the way, has said that he's an historian of 18th and 19th century slavery, not a historian of women's suffrage. I mean, she's basically saying that he's got no business getting into it. I mean, all of this stuff um, is all a bit highbrow, isn't it, 
at the end of the day. Uh, sure, there will be academics who want to look into what happened during slavery. But the problem for me with all of this uh, is that slavery goes both ways. There was slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries, of course there was, but there was lots of other things going on as well. And much of the slavery was embedded uh, in the countries where the slaves came from. Much of what happened uh, was also kind of enabled by the countries where the slaves came from. Much of the selling of the slaves was done by people from those countries. So let's not have a one-sided argument. Let's not make all white people somehow responsible for slavery in Britain because there were lots of other countries involved. France was involved. Belgium, of course, was involved as well. And let's not forget the involvement of Spain uh, and Portugal. You know, Europe, as a general rule, uh, was involved. But the trouble with all of these stories is that somebody wants their pound of flesh, somebody wants to blame somebody else. They can't just look at something in an historical context and be happy that that's what happened. They have to have some kind of reparation. They have to have some kind of justice. Well, maybe this time it's a step too far. And the MP in question is in the right. That's your World of Woke. The World of Woke. Sadly, the World of Woke is about as woke as it's ever been, certainly when it gets to Cambridge University. And it also does have a problem in schools because, of course, uh, an independent panel of uh, experts assembled by the Department for Education this summer will assess the state of relationships and sex education. We're going to talk now uh, to Claire Page, founder of No Secret Lessons, a parent-led campaign for transparency in UK schools. She's got a piece in The Spectator this week and uh, she's warning um, of the dangers of the schools being allowed to do whatever the hell they like. Claire, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi. Hi, glad to be here. So you're looking for greater transparency in schools. Um, why do you think they're not as transparent as they ought to be? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think partly it's because uh, there are outside providers who are visiting the schools. Yeah. So they have um, the ability to protect their uh, intellectual property and to keep that secret, um, and I actually went through a court case that sort of established the fact, sadly, that they do have the right to do that. Um, and so the schools don't necessarily always have the information themselves, and it belongs to the third-party provider. Mm. Which is an extraordinary situation. It wouldn't really happen in any other situation, would it? Um, I, I can't believe it happens in this situation. Yes, I'm really surprised. I mean, it's very, you know, the guidance uh, that's issued by the Department for Education is very clear in uh, favouring transparency and suggesting that parents should have the right to see things. Um, and yet this seems to get, get around that guidance. Yeah, I mean, we had that bizarre story didn't we i think it was week before last of the, the the preschool the kindergarten in fact in up in hull where they were showing four-year-olds a book about the pride granddad while the pride granddad was parading around in in sort of s&m bondage gear yeah. um with his partner and you just think what on earth are they thinking you know who in their right mind would think that that's a good book to show to a four-year-old well, well there's a, there is a significant radical movement that I think wants to influence, uh, particularly RSE, so that's Relationships and Sex Education. Yeah. And, um, and uh, some of the thinking behind that um, is coming from quite radical academia. Mm. And so when you actually look into the, uh, the sources of this information and what it means, um, it's, it's really way beyond, I think, what the general public realises. Um, and certainly beyond what I think the majority of parents would accept. 
And why do you think they're doing that? Because I asked this question at the time, and I know there are many other examples of, of, of this type of material, not just that particular book. But I was asking the question at the time, you know, what sort of people want to push this agenda on children? Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine, isn't it? I think there are a lot more people who are doing this who don't fully understand what they're doing. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important. I think there are a lot of, te- first of all, there are a lot of teachers who don't want to teach this, but feel that they ought to because there is, uh, there's guidance and there are external charities who are advising they must. Then there's a group of people, I think, who believe that it's about social justice. And they're very sure that all matters of social justice can only be good. And so they pass that on. And then I think there are genuinely some people who have, um, let's say, you know, a, a malevolent intent. Mm. Um, and some of those people, you don't need very many of those people to be shaping the education somewhere in the in the uh, channel to, you know, uh, of command, if you like, to to ha- actually affect a very wide area. Um, and it gets passed on um, with well-meaning by people who don't realise actually what, yeah. what they're doing because that is the problem isn't it and I've, you see it in a lot of areas where we've seen this stonewall kind of you know um, league table of companies or colleges or whatever it is um because it's the people who are kind of going along with it who think they're doing the right thing somehow exactly and i think that that we really need to be able to talk about child safeguarding without being worried about what it means for identity politics what it means for social justice those matters can be discussed, but child safeguarding has to come first. And we need to be able to put that, uh, you know, put it to one side and talk about social justice, um, you know, as a secondary point. Mm. Uh, and that that's what not happening. And because people are uh, so concerned, for example, about particularly about LGBTQ plus equality, um, they are looking for materials that they can, uh, let's say, you know, virtue signal or, or demonstrate that they're doing the right thing by being inclusive. Um, and they're not really reading into the, to what those materials are. And very often those materials, you know, they might they might not even really be representing L, uh, LGBTQ interests, actually. Yes. And some of the questions that, that, that are put to children. Um, you've included in this piece in The Spectator, including um, the School of Sexuality Education offering online lessons around that sex uh, education series that's on Netflix, which is sort of designed for people of 18 years and older, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the, the the film is for 18 plus or the series is for 18 plus, and yet the lessons actually require uh, children or teenagers to go and watch that in order to answer the the questions that are they're being uh, given right. so right off the bat the company seems not to understand age appropriateness or to take care of children's uh, um you know children's innocence yeah. um and in fact actually a lot of the academia talks about actually discarding the concept of childhood innocence which uh, again i feel is a very worrying uh, move and something that i probably the public at large isn't okay with Yes, I think that's right. Certainly not most parents, I would, I would definitely suggest. And so um, this Department of Education panel of experts, what are you hoping for them to kind of uh, come out of the other end of this with? Yeah, well, the, the, the panel of experts are not actually making the RSHE review. What they're doing is going to advise the DfE uh, on age appropriateness. And then the DfE will actually make the final decisions mm-hmm. about the changes. What's concerning is that I'm hearing that possibly the findings of the independent panel might not be made public. And so the DfE will receive some advice and then they will go ahead and make their decisions. And we won't get to know 
exactly what the independent panel was, has seen, what they're concerned about and what their advice is. And so we won't be able to make a decision as to whether the Department for Education has uh, come up with good solutions or not. Yes, indeed. So, I mean, with hopefully a following wind, you'll be coming out the other end of this with a much better idea of what it is that children are being taught and, and, and a much better way for parents to discover what that is as well. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that we will get that out of the RSHE review. I really hope we do. But what I'm calling for, which I think would be one of the best ways to get a good result, is to just change the law to make an amendment to the Education Act mm. and to simply say that all school materials should just be uh, published and open to scrutiny. Uh, to the public scrutiny. And that way, you know, we can correct things that go wrong by parents stepping in, making formal complaints, talking to each other about what's going on and just getting some sunlight onto it. Mm, absolutely right. Well, good to talk to you, Claire. Thanks very much indeed. We wish you well uh, with that uh, particular mission because it ain't going to be easy, that's for sure, because the schools not only uh, are teaching children some rather dubious things uh, without their parents' knowledge, but it turns out that an awful lot of the classrooms now uh, are in places which could be considered quite dangerous, where the ceilings could indeed fall in uh, because the wrong kind of concrete has been used. And unfortunately, uh, it only had a 30-year lifespan and the lifespan is up. And so there's something like 700,000 students facing 11,000 school closures with lockdown fears over this problem. And we all know we don't want another lockdown. We all know you don't need to stay home to look after your kids because they're working from home and doing lessons from home like it was during COVID. That was an absolute unmitigated disaster. And if you think that's a good idea, and then I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.